New York. This is Democracy Now. In Shanghai, a lot of people have already been detained. Not only last night, they did it for everybody, for all the people, for the delivery guys not to be locked in their apartments, for everybody to be able to receive medicines and food. We need to help these people, free those people in Shanghai. Protests have erupted in Shanghai, Beijing, and other large Chinese cities over the government's strict zero COVID policies. The demonstrations mark an unprecedented challenge to Xi Jinping. We'll get the latest. Then we go to Missouri, where the state's preparing to execute Kevin Johnson Tuesday, but a special prosecutor's urging Missouri's Supreme Court to stay the execution because the case was tainted by racism. Meanwhile, Johnson's 19-year-old daughter has been barred from witnessing the execution because she's under 21. It's hard because I know that if it does happen, it's not going to be. He's not going to be here to watch me grow and continue to make him happy. He's not going to be able to see me be a better parent than what he was able to be and what my mom wasn't able to be. In Western Sahara, accuse Morocco of greenwashing. Plus, the Spanish Film Academy, the Spanish equivalent of the Oscars, has just given its Social Justice Award to Western Sahara International Film Festival in Algeria at the refugee camps, as well as its film school. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Protests have erupted in Beijing, Shanghai, and other Chinese cities over China's strict zero-COVID policy. The protests were triggered by a deadly fire Thursday at an apartment building in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang. Unrest has been brewing in recent weeks with rare public protests against the government's restrictions. There are reports local COVID-19 protocols prevented firefighters from reaching residents trapped in the burning building, resulting in the deaths of at least 10 people, including children. On Friday, crowds took to the streets of Urumqi. Protests then spread to other large cities and campuses, including Tsinghua University in Beijing, where Chinese leader Xi Jinping studied. Many of the protesters held up blank pieces of white paper. One man in Beijing told Reuters, the white paper represents everything we want to say but cannot say. On Saturday night, hundreds gathered in Shanghai for a candlelight vigil for the victims of the Urumqi fire, where clashes with police were caught on camera. You guys have a job. Have you experienced joblessness? You guys have a job to make a living and make money. How about us? It has been three years. Okay. Videos show some protesters chanting, down with Xi Jinping and we want freedom. We'll have more on the story after headlines. Ukrainians are bracing for more frigid conditions as President Volodymyr Zelensky warns further Russian missile strikes are coming and utility companies struggle to restore power to damaged infrastructure. The National Energy Company asked residents to keep conserving electricity so as not to overwhelm the power grid. Ukrainian nuclear authorities said Russian forces may be preparing to leave the occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, though Russia has denied this claim. Over the weekend, Ukrainians commemorated the Holodomor, the famine of 1932 to 33, which was brought on by Soviet leader Joseph Stalin's policies and killed at least four million people by many estimates. German lawmakers are planning to pass a resolution this week declaring the Holodomor a genocide. 
In Iran, the niece of the supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, activist Farida Muradkhani, urged foreign powers to cut ties with the Iranian regime over its brutal crackdown on protests. Oh, free people, be with us and tell your governments to stop supporting this murderous and child-killing regime. This regime is not loyal to any of its religious principles and does not know any laws or rules except force and maintaining its power in any possible way. Farida Moradkhani was arrested last week, according to her brother, just days before the video started circulating. The U.N. Human Rights Council voted Thursday to establish a fact-finding investigation into human rights abuses against protesters. One rights group says 18,000 people have been arrested, while security forces have killed 450 protesters since mid-September, including 63 children. Other high-profile protest supporters have been targeted by authorities. The rapper Maj Salehi has been charged with corruption on earth and could be sentenced to death. Meanwhile, the soccer player, Varia Ghafouri, was arrested last week on charges of incitement against the regime. This comes as Iran called for the U.S. team to be expelled from the FIFA World Cup in Qatar after it posted a now-removed picture of the Iranian flag on social media without the emblem of the Islamic Republic. Iran will face the U.S. on the field tomorrow. Of course, the Iranian team did not sing the Iranian national anthem and Qatar as well. In Israel, extreme right politician Itamar Ben Gavir will become the new national security minister as part of a deal with incoming Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his Likud party. The ultra-nationalist lawmaker was convicted in 2007 of racist incitement against Arabs and supporting a terrorist group. Ben Gavir will be responsible for border police in the occupied West Bank at a time when violence and the killing of Palestinians has been surging. This is Bassem Asahi of the Palestine Liberation organization. Now more than ever, Israel becomes an occupier state, apartheid state, and fascist. So now we can say that the upcoming Israeli government, which will be led by Netanyahu, contains all the ingredients of a terrorist group, according to international standards. Opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim has become Malaysia's 10th prime minister. His victory came a week after a heated general election resulted in Malaysia's first ever hung parliament, as no major parties were able to secure enough votes to form a new government. Ibrahim vowed to fight corruption, revive the economy, and tackle racial divisions and discrimination. He's a former student activist. He was jailed twice on charges denounced by supporters and human rights groups as politically motivated. In Hong Kong, six high-profile pro-democracy advocates, including the 90-year-old bishop Joseph Zen, were found guilty Friday for failing to register a fund that helped people arrested during mass protests in 2019. The defendants will be fined up to around $500 each. Observers say the case is meant to further deter pro-democracy organizing in Hong Kong. The prime minister of the Central African nation of Sao Tome and Principe said government forces thwarted a coup attempt Friday. Authorities say four people were killed. Two have been arrested, including an opposition politician. The small island nation located in the Gulf of Guinea on the Atlantic Ocean has a population of under a quarter million people and a relatively stable democracy. 
In the Democratic Republic of Congo, M23 rebels have accepted a conditional ceasefire with Congolese troops. Heavy fighting in eastern DRC has displaced tens of thousands of people in recent weeks. The ceasefire agreement was brokered by East African leaders last week, but M23 was not present as the Congolese government refuses direct talks with the rebels. The DRC is accusing Rwanda of backing M23 fighters. Local groups have also rejected the talks and are demanding foreign forces leave the country. For us, the people, these agreements and summits do not interest us. What interests us is to have peace and security that is a right for us. We must not remain in this misery for decades. What we are asking for is the immediate withdrawal of the Rwandan army and the Ugandan army from Congolese soil. Italy has declared a state of emergency on the southern island of Ischia after at least seven people, including a newborn baby and two children, were killed Saturday in a massive landslide triggered by days of torrential rain. It was the worst storm reported in Ischia, an island in the Gulf of Naples, in the last 20 years. Rescue teams continue to search for missing people through the mud and debris. Many are blaming the illegal construction of buildings and homes in a region that's already extremely vulnerable to landslides and seismic activity for exacerbating the destruction. It is the fault of our old politicians who did not do preventative work on the mountains. They cut down the trees, and this is the consequence. In Sweden, Greta Thunberg joined over 600 other young climate activists to sue their government over its failure to respond to the climate catastrophe. The activists marched from the Parliament building in Stockholm to the court to file the lawsuit during their weekly Fridays for Future protest. In other climate news, a report released last week finds Europe's record-breaking summer heat wave may have caused some 20,000 excess deaths. In Panama, New protections for hundreds of threatened animal and plant species were approved last week at the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. After two weeks of talks, member states agreed to regulations protecting several species of shark, songbirds, glass frogs, and tropical timber from illegal international trade. Nations also discussed efforts to address the illegal trade of jaguars, pangolins, and elephants. But advocates are criticizing the failure to increase protections for hippos threatened by legal worldwide trade, mainly of their ivory teeth for commercial purposes. Back in the United States and Georgia, early voting has begun in the Senate runoff between Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. Reverend Warnock, Senator Warnock, received 37,000 more votes than Walker in the November 8th election, but did not clear the 50 percent threshold to win the race outright. Former President Obama is scheduled to appear at a Warnock rally in Georgia Thursday. While campaigning Saturday, Senator Warnock addressed reproductive rights just three days after the Georgia Supreme Court reinstated the state abortion ban one week after the ban had been overturned by a lower court. As a man of faith, I, I have a profound reverence for life. And as a man of faith, I have a deep and abiding respect for choice. And I think that a patient's room is too narrow and too cramped a space for a woman, her doctor, and the United States government. 
Twitter's expected to reinstate most suspended accounts this week after new owner Elon Musk announced Thursday a general amnesty for previously banned users. Imran Ahmed from the group Center for Countering Digital Hate said, quote, super spreaders of hate, abuse and harassment will be the only people to benefit from this latest decision by Twitter. This comes as a new report found half of Twitter's top 100 advertisers have left the platform since Musk's takeover. Former columnist and writer E. Jean Carroll suing Donald Trump for rape. Carroll was already suing the former president for defamation, but filed her sexual assault lawsuit Thursday, minutes after New York's Adult Survivors Act took effect, which opens up a one-year window for adult sex abuse survivors to sue their attackers, even if the statute of limitations has passed. Carroll has accused Trump of raping her in a Manhattan department store dressing room in the 1990s. Trump has denied the claim. In other Trump news, the former president came under fire, including from some Republicans, after he hosted far-right personality white supremacist Holocaust denier Rick Fuentes and rapper Kanye West at Mar-a-Lago last week. In the U.K., over 70,000 university employees went on strike Thursday and Friday over salary, pensions and working conditions. Another strike's planned for Wednesday. It's thought to be the largest ever strike affecting higher education in the U.K. Meanwhile, nurses with Britain's National Health Service are planning to strike for two days in December, the nurses' union's first strike in its 106-year history. Nurses say the government's refusal to provide adequate pay raises mean many are not able to make ends meet or are forced to quit their jobs. And Amazon warehouse workers in the U.S. and around the world walked out on Black Friday as part of the Make Amazon Pay campaign, calling for better wages and working conditions. This is a U.N. representative from Germany, which is experiencing its highest inflation rate in decades. There's a Black Week now, not just Black Friday. Everybody is looking for bargains here. But quite honestly, these bargains are made on the backs of our colleagues. They just don't earn enough money for it. It's German Union Representative Petra Kusenberg, and those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Protests have erupted in Beijing, in Shanghai, in Wuhan, in Guangzhou, and other Chinese cities over China's strict zero-COVID policies. The protests were triggered by a deadly fire Thursday at an apartment building in Urumqi, the capital of the far western province Xinjiang. There are reports that local COVID-19 protocols prevented firefighters from reaching residents trapped in the burning building, resulting in the deaths of at least 10 people, including children. On Friday, crowds took to the streets in Urumqi. Protests then spread to other large cities and campuses, including Tsinghua University in Beijing, where Chinese leader Xi Jinping studied. Many of the protesters held up blank pieces of white paper. One man in Beijing told Reuters the white paper represents everything we want to say but cannot say. Protesters say police in Shanghai have begun detaining people who took part in the demonstrations. In Shanghai, a lot of people have already been detained, not only last night. They did it for everybody, for all the people, for the delivery guys not to be locked in their apartments, for everybody to be able to receive medicines and food. We need to help these people, free those people in Shanghai. 
On Sunday, police in Shanghai arrested BBC reporter Ed Lawrence while he was covering a protest. He was held for hours. The BBC says he was beaten and kicked by police officers. The protests in China mark an unprecedented challenge to Xi Jinping's zero-COVID policies, which has resulted in extended strict lockdowns across China. Last week, hundreds of workers at the world's largest iPhone factory clashed with Chinese police over COVID restrictions, which have forced many workers to live at the Foxconn factory. Videos posted on social media show workers being tear-gassed and beaten outside the plant. Earlier today, China announced it would ease some COVID restrictions, but affirmed its zero-COVID strategy. The protests come as COVID cases are at a record high in China. There were just over 40,000 new infections reported Sunday, a new single-day high. Throughout the pandemic, China has reported far fewer COVID cases and deaths than the United States and other nations. The United States is currently recording an average of 42,000 cases a day. Since the start of the pandemic, the U.S. has recorded nearly 1.1 million COVID deaths. China's official COVID death toll is just over 5,000. Last week, China recorded its first COVID death in six months. To talk more about the protests in China, we're joined by Eli Friedman. He's an associate professor and chair of International and Comparative Labor at Cornell University. He's the author of The Urbanization of People, The Politics of Development, Labor Markets, and Schooling in the Chinese City. He's also co-editor of the new book, The China Question, Toward Left Perspectives. His recent article for the Asian Labor Review is titled Foxconn's Great Escape. Professor Friedman, thanks so much for being with us. Let's start off by talking about this uprising over the last few days in Beijing, in the financial capital uh, Shanghai, in Urumqi and other places, the significance of this. Well, thanks for having me, Amy. Uh, this is unbelievably significant for a number of reasons. Uh, it is the largest protest movement that uh, Xi Jinping has faced uh, in the 10 years since he came to power. There was a, a, a protest that was probably larger in scale uh, in 2012, just before he came to power, which was uh, an anti-Japanese protest. Uh, over some disputed islands. Um, but we haven't seen anything like this. And there's a couple of things that are really significant about it. The first is that it's nationwide. So as we've just heard, uh, these protests are appearing in cities uh, across the country from the far west uh, to, to the more populous east coast. Um, and that's extremely unusual uh, in China. We, we see localized small-scale protests, but this, this nationwide scale is really unprecedented. The other thing that I think is, is really important and maybe of, uh, uh, of greater concern um, to the authorities is the fact that it has incorporated a really diverse group uh, of people. We see across class alliance. You've mentioned the workers uh, in Foxconn, and then we have the students at Tsinghua, at the most elite uh, university, uh, students also at Peking University. Uh, we see middle-class people uh, in Shanghai. It's also uh, a cross-ethnic um, a movement, and I think that that hasn't necessarily been been fully appreciated. Uh, the fact that that this is a response to a fire that happened in Urumqi is incredibly important, given the background uh, of of repression, surveillance, a uh, mass incarceration that has happened uh, to Muslim minorities there. And so, and, and so, this is really one of the first time that we've seen this kind of cross 
ethnic form of mobilization. And so uh, for all of these reasons, it does present a really big challenge. So, um, yes, you're talking about the Uyghurs uh, in Xinjiang. Uh, then the belief, whether it is true or not, that the firefighters now video has come out on social media um, of the fire trucks trying to get to that building where the fire was. But for people to understand how strict this COVID crackdown has been, I've been talking to people uh, who have family in China, talking about throughout the level of people not being able to move. One 80-year-old man in a city that is not thought of as a crackdown city has had a hundred tests in a month. If you go in the subway, your card will detect if um, uh, they'll see where you were. And so if someone four cars down, uh, it comes down positive with COVID, you'll all be uh, locked down in wherever you live. So talk about what the protesters are saying. They'll also be very sarcastic and say things like more crackdown, more tests. I think it's really difficult for people outside of China to understand the intensity of the lockdowns. Uh, for those of us in the United States, when we think of that period of, of quote-unquote lockdown uh, back in the spring of 2020, they, they were never rigorously enforced. Uh, most people were still able to, to leave their house. China now for three years has seen a, a level of lockdown that is simply uh, inconceivable. In some cases with apartment buildings uh, being locked, some people have reported their, their own personal uh, apartment doors being chained shut so they actually cannot leave. So it's really a, a kind of house arrest. One of the other things that's really significant, and there's we can get into the the, the the underlying causes of this. But I think that we should also think of this as a movement against surveillance. Over the last three years, the state has un unrolled a, a really encompassing and extremely invasive surveillance system through the system of, of health codes. And so, as you were just suggesting, if you were a contact, a close contact, or even a secondary contact of someone who later tested positive, then your health code turns red. If your health code turns red, then you're not allowed to leave your house until you have a series uh, of negative tests. This, of course, can be extremely disruptive to people's lives. Um, so, so the way that it, it intervenes in people's lives, the way that it disrupts basic sort of social patterns, the way that it disrupts livelihoods, and this is a particularly a problem for working class people, uh, for informal workers who need to be out and about in the city and who aren't just white collar workers who can, you know, hop on a Zoom call and, and do their job from home. Um, it's had it's had really uh, significant effects for for people. Um, and just again, imagine that this is this has gone on for three years. Um, you know, uh, it's. It really has a huge impact, I think, on people's mental well-being. We've seen a huge increase in mental health crises and suicides and domestic violence. And just one final point on this. Um, I, the Chinese government, uh, as well as society more broadly, did a great job mobilizing and really crushing the, the virus back in 2020. They've saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of lives. But there's also other uh, unaccounted for consequences, and it's been extremely difficult for people to get access to health care for non-COVID related problems. So if you're in a lockdown and there's been case after case where, you know, you've had pregnant women who, who have miscarried, you've had people who haven't been able to get dialysis because, you know, their, their code won't allow them to access the hospital. Um, th there are real uh, health consequences that come from from this intensity of lockdown uh, as well for, for all these non-COVID related things. And, of course, people not being able to get insulin and other uh, medications. Now, uh, Professor Friedman, um, the white paper being held up. Talk about the significance of this. 
Yeah, well, uh, it's it's really interesting to see how this uh, developed. Um, this is actually something I, I think that that people are referencing a uh, movement that came out of Hong Kong uh, back in 2019. Uh, wh- whether or not they're they're doing so consciously or not, this is something that emerged in Hong Kong, uh, and and this is in a situation where censorship is so overwhelming. Uh, of course, the Chinese internet is is scrubbed uh, assiduously of things that that the that the government deems to be inappropriate. And so, one of the things that people have been doing uh, online is just repeating these words. They'll say like "good, good, good." You know, these are things that cannot be censored. Um, and the white paper is is another uh, indicator of that. In a situation where you can't say anything, you just hold up the piece of paper, uh, and that is a form of resistance. I think that the, the the white paper is is quite interesting. It's quite it, it is a very different kind of a demand than the the ones that originally uh, emerged in in the Foxconn riot, which were of course a workplace oriented. It's different than the fire safety and the health stuff. This is really a question about freedom of speech and censorship, and I think it's not surprising, therefore, that it's it's gotten more currency among uh, among students, among among intellectuals and middle class people in the large eastern cities. Um, so, so you know, it's also very open to interpretation, and I'm sure other people have have different kinds of interpretation. But it's a form of resistance uh, when when all kinds of speech can be criminalized. And um, I mean, you have in the Chinese national anthem the reference to overthrowing slavery. And you have this repeated now in many different places, the issue, uh, this particular issue. Explain what is meant by this and how this is now, yes, triggered by COVID policies, but going to a level of challenge of Xi Jinping that hasn't been seen before. Well, that's the first thing that's worth emphasizing is this kind of direct challenge uh, to Xi's power and even to the power of the Communist Party. We've not seen it all uh, in recent years. There was this incident just before the 20th Party Congress earlier this fall, this guy at the Sitong uh, Bridge. Who, who called on uh, uh, who called for, for Xi Jinping to step down and then just a couple of days ago something which previously would have been absolutely unimaginable you had people in the streets uh, of Shanghai saying down with Xi Jinping and down with with the Communist Party uh, you know so, so that is is really uh, just a, a significant shift I think from from where we've been uh, with respect to the to the question of of um, Slavery, you know, I, I think one of the realizations, um, particularly that middle class uh, Han Chinese people have had going back to the Shanghai lock- lockdowns, which were last April, was really the unchecked power of the state. Now, the the, the state's capacity to surveil, to repress, um, and to exploit, I think, has been long known by lots of people in China, by migrant workers who come from the the rural areas to the cities who don't enjoy rights. Certainly, by ethnic minorities, uh, by the by the Uyghurs, uh, by Tibetans. This has been something that they've known. During these, the, the Shanghai lockdown, and I think over the last several months, it's come to the attention of other people that there are no checks on state power, and, and that if the state wants to lock you in your house indefinitely until they say you're free to go, um, they have the capacity to do that. And I think for people, for particularly for young people who grew up uh, you know, without the same kind of material deprivation that their parents might have. This is really, this has been really shocking. And, and I've seen it personally, you know, with many of my students uh, and friends that I have uh, in China as well. Um, so, yeah. You, Professor Friedman, finally, you mentioned Foxconn. I mean, we're talking about the largest iPhone factory in the world. Are we talking about hundreds of thousands of people who work there and explain how this has also been a hot red, hotbed of unrest um, with the crackdown there and what's happened? 
Yeah, the Foxconn piece of it is is really important. Um, You know, I'm a labor scholar and a labor activist, and I hope that this doesn't get erased from the story of what's happening, because it was a really important catalyst for for all the protests that we're seeing nationwide. Um, It's also really important because what Foxconn highlights is that while this the zero COVID policy is implemented by the Chinese government, Xi Jinping personally takes responsibility for it, that all of these multinational corporations, including America's most valuable corporations like Apple and Tesla, are implicated in this. So what they've done, and this is, again, I think uh, highlights the, the sort of the class nature of these lockdowns, that people experience them differently. Working class people have been subjected to what's called closed loop management. And this has happened at Foxconn. It happened earlier uh, in Shanghai at the Tesla factory and at other Apple suppliers. Workers go into the factory. And they're not allowed to leave until the, until they're told that the outbreak is under control. In some cases, back in Shanghai, they were they were in the closed loop for more than 70 days, just sleeping on the shop floor, cut off from their communities, cut off from their friends. And in the case of Foxconn, we saw back in October that people were were uh, being put into quarantine in unsafe conditions. They weren't being being given adequate uh, medical uh, attention. They weren't being given adequate food. And so thousands of people just escaped. They, they ran for the exits. Their employer was not letting them. And so they literally just jumped over the fences. Um, and and then subsequently, they tried to bring people in. They were not forthcoming about how much money they would actually be receiving or they tried to backtrack. And this led to this I, probably the most significant worker uprising of the past 10 years, incredibly violent scenes. And so the significance of this is that, you know, when we have this kind of resistance against zero COVID, yes, it's against a specific Chinese government policy, but. America's most valuable corporations are implicated in this. Uh, and, and, and so I think that it's really important for them to, to respond to this. Well, Eli Friedman, I want to thank you for being with us. Of course, this is an issue we're going to continue to cover. Associate Professor and Chair of International Comparative Labor at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, author of The Urbanization of People, The Politics of Development, Labor Markets and Schooling in the Chinese City, also co-editor of The China Question, Toward Left Perspectives. We'll also link to your article for the Asian Labor Review titled Foxconn's Great Escape. Next up, we go to Missouri, where the state's preparing to execute Kevin Johnson Tuesday. But a special prosecutor is urging Missouri's Supreme Court to stay the execution because of racism. Meanwhile, Johnson's 19-year-old daughter has been barred from witnessing the execution because she's under the age of 21. Stay with us. by Prince Paul and Don Newkirk. Hip-hop pioneer Don Newkirk passed away this weekend at the age of 56. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to Missouri, where there's growing pressure to stop the execution of Kevin Johnson set to take place Tuesday. Johnson was sentenced to die for the 2005 murder of Kirkwood police officer William McEntee. During his incarceration, 
Johnson stayed in close contact with his family, has been a nurturing son, father, and more recently, grandfather. This is Kevin Johnson speaking about his close relationship with his daughter, Corey Ramey, during an interview on Missouri's death row with his legal team. When I was 17, my daughter, Corey, was born, you know, and I didn't have anything, you know, no money. No real way, place to live. I was in the group home, but I just knew I wanted to be her dad and stuff. So, and uh, uh, I felt kind of like an obligation to do for her, just like I had for Bam Bam, that same kind of. And she immediately became my priority. Her mother, Dana, Dana was younger, Dana was 14. Neither one of us had anything, so. In September of 2007, Dana, Corey's mother, was murdered. She was 18 years old. Corey was four years old. And I remember when I got to had a contact visit in the uh, county jail. I remember the first thing I heard my mom was like, "My mama did." She said she had Kool-Aid coming out her head, and I think that was like the hardest part to cope with. You know, being a protected person and not being able to do anything. That's when I felt a, a true obligation to her because I was her only parent, you know, because that's my goal, to be the best father I can be. And so I had some communication with other people here and told like, this is what you need to do. You need to com communicate with her as much as possible. And, and I did that. And I tried to find people in this real world, the free world, to try to, you know, be of an influence in her life as well. Being in prison, I still try to do everything I can for her. Johnson, speaking from Missouri death row, he's set to die Tuesday. He was 19 years old at the time of his crime. Now, his 19-year-old daughter, Corey, filed a lawsuit with the help of the ACLU in order to witness his execution, even though the minimum age for witnesses in Missouri is 21. Corey spoke about her relationship with her father in an interview with his legal team. He's like a normal parent who wants the kid to succeed. Um, probably once or twice a week, I talk to my dad. He, um, yeah, he always tells me to do my best and just regular stuff that like fathers and daughters talk about, just what's going on in my life with how he's feeling, how I'm feeling, what steps am I taking to do more in my life. My dad was very excited when I graduated, especially since I graduated early. And even though he's been away in prison, he's been more supportive in, in my life than most of my friends' fathers that are out in the regular world living and have their freedom. He um, tries to send me stuff for like scholarships or like people who I can get in contact with to help me further my career in the nursing field that I want to do. And he's just, he's always been there. So he's definitely, he does way more than what most people would feel like they would be able to do behind bars. It's hard. Can you ask? Because I know that if it does happen, he's not going to be He's not going to be here to watch me grow and continue to make him happy. He's not going to be able to see me be a better parent than what he was able to be. 
and what my mom wasn't able to be. Last week, a federal judge denied Corey Ramey's request to witness her father, Kevin Johnson's execution Tuesday, since she's under the state's age threshold of 21, saying it could cause emotional harm but did not violate her constitutional rights. She responded briefly in an emotional press conference. My name is Corey Ramey. I'm 19 years old. I am a new mom to my new boy, and I'm not going to read anyone. As the case draws international attention, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch ran an editorial headlined Upcoming Execution Shows the Inherent Indefensibility of Capital Punishment. Kevin Johnson's past teachers have also joined protests calling to commute his death sentence to life in prison. This comes as the Missouri Supreme Court is set to hear arguments today from Kevin Johnson's lawyers for a stay of execution based on racial discrimination in his prosecution and conviction and death sentence. Among those who support the claim is a special prosecutor who was appointed by the St. Louis County's prosecuting attorney and found that, quote, purposeful racial discrimination infected the process. This is Tony Rothert with the ACLU of Missouri. This is a case where it's the prosecutor asking to stop the execution. I've been doing this work for a long, long time, and I've never had a case where the prosecutor asked to stop the execution. Missouri Governor Mike Parsons could also grant Kevin Johnson clemency if Missouri executes him. It would be the fifth execution by a state in November, making it the busiest month of 2022 for capital punishment in the United States. For more, we go to St. Louis to speak with Michelle Smith, co-director of Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Michelle. Just Bring us up to date on what we should understand this case and the agony of Corey, the 19-year-old daughter, um, who wants to witness her father's execution, but the state says no, she has to be 21, only one of, what, two states in the country who have this rule. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me, um, Amy. And yes, this is—every step of this has been an injustice— and more pain and harm to Corey. Uh, and she is an innocent person in this entire situation. And she's honestly just trying to be there for her father and, you know, have those last moments. And even people say, why would she want to be there? Um, I don't know anyone who wouldn't want to be, you know, near their, their parent, you know, when they pass away, right? Um, and this situation is a little different, but uh, it's not so different because um, Kevin, Kevin is scheduled to be executed tomorrow and his daughter would like to be at, as close by his side as she possibly can. So the fact that the court is saying that she's not old enough um, and actually say the law says she's not mature enough at 19 to do so, again, is a more injustice that is heaped upon um, her her life. Um. I want to ask you about um, the whole issue of racism um, and the editorial in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Um, it was headlined, as I said before, Upcoming Execution Shows the Inherent Indefensibility of Capital Punishment. It read in part, unlike too many other black defendants, Johnson didn't face an all-white jury. But race was a factor in his trials. In the first, when the judge said he intended to ensure a racial mix in the jury, the prosecutor derided that as silly and asked, why am I being penalized, implying that more black
black jurors would make a conviction less likely. Indeed, the six black and six white jurors could not agree on a first-degree murder verdict. Johnson was later convicted by a second jury, which had just three black members. This whole issue of um, racism infecting the trial. I will say that racism, discrimination, prejudice are embedded in every institution in this nation. And that, of course, you know, shows itself in the court system. Um, our prosecutor, who is our past prosecutor, he is no longer um, in that office, but he uh, was known as the king of the Batson. And Batson is a, a case where a black man some years ago um, sued because uh, there was an all-white jury in his case, and he felt like that was uh, a discriminatory because it was not a jury of his peers. And so the, the Supreme Court established that, you know, a prosecutor purposely making sure that black jurors were not, were not on the jury was unconstitutional. However, prosecutors still did it. And our former prosecutor, Bob McCullough, he was actually known in legal circles as king of the Batson, meaning he disregarded the fact that the Supreme Court had deemed this unconstitutional. He was going to do what he could to get the verdict that he wanted. And in you know all of these cases with black men um, were three and a half times more likely to get uh, capital punishment than uh, white people. And so he, you know, he took it upon himself to make sure that racism, discrimination and all of the ills of our society, uh, you know, were well uh, embedded in his prosecutorial pra prosecutorial practices. Can you talk about Eric Schmidt, the Missouri attorney general who's about to become U.S. Senator Trump supporting U.S. Senator right before Trump left? People may remember there was an execution spree in the United yes. States. Um, talk about this being the ending of Eric Schmidt's attorney general career. You know, to be honest, I believe that um, Eric Schmidt is trying to recreate, reenact and follow in the footsteps of Donald Trump in, in uh, Bill Barr, um, because like, like you said, there was an execution spree uh, two years ago on the, their way out on Trump and Barr's way out. And they killed 13 people. And Eric Schmidt, several months ago, you know, he started running for the U.S. Senate and he decided, you know, to me, that's what it felt like. At least he decided he's going to do his own execution spree in Missouri. And so he's asked for five execution dates. Uh, three of them have been scheduled and two more are pending. And this is unprecedented. Normally in our state, uh, there is one execution scheduled a year, which, of course, is one too many. But to have uh, the prosecutor ask for five execution dates within the span of months, mm. and currently we have three of them scheduled, I definitely feel like um, Eric Smith is trying to follow in those footsteps and um, uh, establish a pattern of executions on his way out because he did win the Senate race and he will be the next uh, U.S. Senator from Missouri. The Missouri Congress members, Cory Bush and Emanuel Cleaver, sent a letter to the Missouri Governor Mike Parson urging him to halt the execution of Johnson by granting clemency, saying, quote, Mr. Johnson's cruel execution will not solve any of the systemic problems facing Missourians and people all across America, including the scourge of gun violence. It'll simply destroy yet another family and community while using the concepts of fairness and justice as a cynical pretext. You have it in your power to save a life by granting clemency. We urge you to use it, uh, said the two Congress members to the governor. Your final comments, Michelle Smith. 
Well, I will say first that a lot of times people don't understand what clemency means. Clemency does not mean letting Kevin out of prison. Clemency means the same as other people who have killed people and also killed policemen to give them a life in prison sentence. And that is what we're asking in Kevin's case, because there are other people who have killed policemen, including several years ago, a white youth killed a policeman and he has a life sentence. And we're asking for the same treatment. That's what we mean by um, equity and fairness not being punished more severely because you are black. And so in this particular case, Kevin definitely is being punished more severely. And so we are asking Governor Parson um, for clemency to switch Kevin's uh, sentence from a death sentence to life in prison, where he can at least still visit and talk to his daughter, you know, which she she values very much. And we definitely appreciate Congress, um, Congresswoman Bush and Congressman Cleaver for that letter. And we understand that the death penalty does not solve anything. Um, the family of uh, Mr. McEntee, and, and we do understand that they are grieving and have been grieving. They're going to be grieving the next day. Uh, this is not something that fixes anything, that solves anything, that stops anything. It definitely instills more uh, trauma and more pain in um, the families, including Kevin's own family. Michelle Smith, we want to thank you for being with us, co-director of Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, calling for a stay of execution for Kevin Johnson and supporting his daughter, Corey Ramey. He's ex he is scheduled to die on Tuesday. Coming up, climate activists in occupied Western Sahara accuse Morocco of greenwashing. And we'll hear about Spanish Film Academy giving its Social Justice Award to the Western Sahara International Film Festival and its film school. Back in 30 seconds. by Nalufer Yanya. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show looking at two stories about occupied Western Sahara. Morocco has occupied Western Sahara since 1975 in defiance of the United Nations and international law. Over the past four decades, thousands of Western Sahara's indigenous people, the Sahrawi, have been tortured, imprisoned, killed, and disappeared while resisting the Moroccan occupation. On Thursday, the Spanish Film Academy, which gives the Goya Awards, the Spanish equivalent of the Oscars, gave its Social Justice Award to the Western Sahara International Film Festival and its film school, Abedin Khaid Salah, known as Fi Sahara. The festival takes place in the Sahrawi refugee camps in southwestern Algeria. Last month celebrated its 17th edition of the film festival. The film school is training the first generation of Sahrawi filmmakers who are pioneering Sahrawi-made cinema, a brand-new art in Western Sahara. Their short films now tour the world, giving voice to Sahrawi refugee youth who were born in exile and are still awaiting a UN-promised referendum on self-determination that would allow them to return to their land, Western Sahara. The festival and the film school operate in one of the world's remotest and toughest environments in the heart of the Sahara Desert. This is Tiba Chagaf, speaking at the awards ceremony in Madrid, director of the Fi Sahara Film Festival and Film School. 
On behalf of the Sahrawi refugees who dedicate our lives to cinema, we are very grateful and truly proud of the men and women who work in the seventh art, who show us daily that those playing fictional roles are far more committed than those who play their real selves. We thank the organizations and the Spanish film community. This festival, born from a shared dream between the Sahrawi people, Spanish filmmakers, and solidarity organizations, would not exist without you. That was Maria Carrion. She is the executive director of the Western Sahara International Film Festival, known as Fi Sahara, uh, also former Democracy Now! producer. She's joining us from Madrid, Spain. Uh, Maria, congratulations on this remarkable award that uh, you won this year, the Fi Sahara Film Festival and the film school in the refugee camps of Algeria. Um, Talk about the significance of this moment. Thank you so much, Amy, for having me on. It was such an honor to receive the highest award that the Film Academy gives for social justice pro pro uh, projects. Um, and it's very significant because um, the conflict in Western Sahara is a silenced uh, conflict. It's a forgotten conflict. And in Spain, our own government has taken um, the side of Morocco, which occupies Western Sahara, over uh, the people that it once colonized, the Sahrawi people. And it, the, as a result also, um, there's a complete media blockade. Uh, and for instance, Spanish public um, TV and radio journalists are banned from going to the camps to cover anything to do with Western Sahara. So the fact that the day before we left for the festival, we got the news and it was made public that the Film Academy uh, gave us this award, forced Spanish media to cover it because they can't leave the Film Academy um, from being covered. Um, it's, uh, it's a festival that celebrates Sahrawi identity, Sahrawi culture that uh, decolonizes the Western Sahara culturally, uh, that celebrates uh, what Sahrawi people are about through film, through music um, and through community. Um, I wanted you to talk about the significance also of what we're about to play. Sahrawi activists came to Sharm el-Sheikh, we just came back from Egypt, to the UN Film, to the UN Climate Summit, to talk about their plight and the, what they call the greenwashing of, uh, uh, by Morocco. It's uh, it's very important that Sahrawi voices find a space at COPS uh, because they're so excluded from international events and by the United Nations itself. And so to have Mahfoud and his colleague there to, to talk about what Morocco is doing, you know, Morocco has built it, its uh, reputation of being one of the greenest countries in Africa, but is doing so at the expense of Sahrawi people because it's uh, basically powering the occupation through its green projects. So it's incredibly significant that um, they were able to be there and, and uh, speak to the media and also um, get to know the activists uh, that were there from around the world because most people don't know about Western Sahara. Well, I want to thank you very much, Maria, for joining us. Uh, final thoughts on what you think are the possibilities of the recognition of um, this occupied territory uh, around the world? Well, the possibility of, of actually getting the voice out that this is a 
colonization, a decolonization that's pending, the more projects um, like Fisahara and others um, that manage to bring the world's attention to this matter, the more chances um, there are that governments will be pressured into doing the right thing. The issue is in the hands of the Security Council, the UN Security Council, which promised a referendum on self-determination, is not doing so because it's not getting enough pressure. So I think that if we can uh, all sort of um, make sure that the world knows about this conflict through culture, arts, politics, and many other ways, the better chance the Sahrawi people have of resolving it and going back to their homeland. Well, Maria Carrion, again, congratulations on this award from the Spanish Film um, Institute, uh, the equivalent of the Academy that gives out the Oscars. Maria Carrion is executive director of Fi Sahara, the Sahara International Film Festival. As we continue to look at occupied Western Sahara, we turn now to the Sahrawi climate activist Mahfoud Beshri. He's a member of the campaign Western Sahara is not for sale. We've just returned from Egypt. I spoke to him last week at the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. So Western Sahara is a non-self-governing territory considered by the UN as a pending decolonization. It's occupied by Morocco since 1975. And uh, since then, Morocco has been like perpetuating its military occupation of Western Sahara, where Saharaos in the occupied territories are suffering from uh, violations of human rights. And the other part of the Saharaui people are being uh, like refugees in uh, southwest of Algeria in, in, in refugee camps. So despite the uh, different resolutions by the United Nations that uh, call for, this, for the right of the Sahrawi people to self-determination, this uh, has not been possible because Morocco has been blocking this and perpetuating its more, uh, military occupation and including now greenwashing this occupation by uh, like uh, 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 speaking uh, about uh, green projects uh, in Morocco, including, unfortunately, the occupied territory of, of Western Sahara. So, uh, uh, basically, this, uh, the people of Western Sahara is still waiting there to exercise the right to self-determination. This has not been happening. And, unfortunately, uh, what Morocco is, is doing is happening without uh, any consequences at the international level. So, the international community is turning a blind eye on what's happening in in Western Sahara, and all, the only thing we are demanding and we are asking for is justice for the people of Western Sahara. So the Sahrawi campaign has long accused Morocco of theft of its natural resources. Can you talk about what exactly it's doing? You say they not only talk about their own projects in Morocco, which you don't criticize, but they're talking about occupied lands and using the conference to greenwash this. Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, what, what Morocco has been doing, but uh, also what the UNFCCC has uh, accepted so far, is that uh, Morocco includes programs, projects, and plans done in occupied Western Sahara. The UN officially uh, uh, has no recognition of any sovereignty of Western Sahara over uh, of Morocco over Western Sahara, and the, the nationally determined contributions of Morocco, the NDCs, include illegally the, the, the territory of Western Sahara. So this is one of the objectives that of why we are coming onto this COP to basically speak up about this and to say that UNF 
Triple C is basically violating uh, the international law by accepting the indices of Morocco, uh, including projects uh, done in uh, in, Western, in occupied uh, Western Sahara. So Morocco, together with some international companies like Siemens, but also Enel and uh, some other companies, are uh, plundering Western Sahara natural resources, are doing uh, uh, renewable energy projects in Western Sahara, despite uh, uh, the despite the different resolutions by the United Nations that states that the the territory of Western Sahara is a non-self-governing territory, and despite even the inter, the the European Court of Justice different resolutions, when it says that there is no sovereignty of Morocco over Western Sahara, and that uh, Morocco and Western Sahara are two different uh, distinct uh, territories. So there is also extractivism that's happening in Western Sahara by like plundering the phosphate mining and other resources like like fish, where Morocco also is using the resources and the wealth of the Sahara people without any consent of the Sahara people, which is what the uh, the court uh, has been uh, asking for, in the Western, consent of the Sahara In people. Western Sahara, phosphates are w w one of the largest resources in the world come from Western Sahara. And also, if you can talk about the sand itself. I mean, Morocco is exporting sand to the Canary Islands in Spain, for example, but to other parts as well, despite that this is a non-renewable uh, uh uh, uh, wealth and that it belongs only to the Sahrawi people but Morocco is getting a lot of profits from um, uh, selling out this uh, this sand and also large amounts of, of fish and phosphate as, as we said and this is why, why what we have been campaigning against in Western Sahara is not for sale and other Sahrawi platforms we are asking these companies to not to not to be complicit with this military occupation to their uh, and we ask them that their participation in exploiting uh, the Western Sahara natural resources is basically participation in this human rights abuses that the Sahrawi people are suffering in, in the occupied territories. So if you can talk more about, as we wrap up, uh, the goals. Uh, for example, um, even right here, how you highlight the case of the Sahrawi people. How how do you want to be represented at these cops? Unfortunately, UNFCCC doesn't uh, doesn't doesn't give a chair for the Sahrawis themselves. So we have to find a way, uh, our ways to come through other international organizations to be part of the of 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 COP. And how is, for example, the European Union and other entities and countries dealing with? Uh, resources that you say are stolen from the Sahrawi people. How yeah. successful have you been in uh, getting them to stop buying them? I think the main, one of the main achievements of Sahrawis have been at the uh, European Court of Justice different resolutions from 2015 until late, last one, September 2021, when it says that the European Union and Morocco uh, could not engage in a commercial agreement that in, involves Western Sahara because the, uh, the European Court of Justice considers the Western Sahara territory as separate and distinct from, the, from the, the, the Moroccan territory. And this is one of the main achievements. However... Sahrawi climate activist Mahfoud Beshri with Western Sahara is not for sale. I spoke to him at the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. To see all of our coverage of the COP um, in Sharm el-Sheikh, as well as 
has our coverage from Cairo, Egypt, you can go to democracynow.org. Also there, you can watch our documentary, Four Days in Occupied Western Sahara, Africa's Last Colony. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Perkin, Augusta Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Mary Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, and Mary Conlin. Our general manager is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Stelly, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grand, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. Also thanks to Honey Masood and Sharifa Belkadus. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.